At this point, I think a significant proportion of Americans get their information from comedy shows. It's like comedians have become like the next generation truth tellers. I, I think so, which is in a lot of ways unfortunate because it's not really the purpose of, of comedy. And the fact that we don't have enough trusted sources of information is what is hurting our democracy. And I think we feel it even in places that we do trust that they hold back. And I, I've been on those news programs as a subject. And sometimes that, uh, like the questions get hashed down, vetted and pre-approved before you agree to show up. So there's that. You could be like, hey, look, don't ask me about X and Y. But number two, if your goal is to get out of that interview um, saying nothing, like you can do it. (laughs) You just don't answer the question. I do it in movie interviews. People ask something and if I don't have an answer for it, I just say anything. And then they're basically out of time. Yeah, you can run out the clock on those interviews all the time. I am thrilled to welcome to Yang Speaks, the prolific powerhouse comedian, writer, director, producer, half the things that have been in movie theaters uh, that that had the word comedy after them over the last number of years. Uh, From this man, Judd Apatow. Judd, welcome to Yang Speaks. It's so good to see you. I'm happy to be here in in this room. Look, look at this, the glamour. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well uh, i saw the king of staten island um which is your latest work uh and enjoyed it immensely and i appreciated the fact that you made it available um in june or in quarantine for video on demand because i know there might have been some calculation on that uh but it, it was heartfelt it was funny it was very very human um certainly for me like it was sort of a struggle. I think the description was something like, this is Pete Davidson's life if he hadn't discovered comedy, something along, along those lines. That, like, That's one way to look at it, yes. <laughs> yeah, but would, would love to uh, hear your take on, um, on that project, particularly because like, I felt like it was very uh, intimate. Like, I, I feel like at this point you could do anything under the sun, but you chose a very human story to tell. I think that I'm attracted to just stories which reflect how hard it is to be a human being in general. So my, my instinct is always for the stories to not have a lot of fireworks, villains, science fiction. I love all those movies, but I definitely think days are hard to get through. I think that's what we're all realizing. Like it's, it's hard to just be a person and try to connect with people to try to be mentally healthy, to try to achieve your, your goals and evolve. And so when, when someone has a, a good story about that, that tends to be what I, I want to talk about. And I'm sure it's just a projection of my own pain and suffering, you know, the, the, of how I see, you know, my, my emotional experience. You know, Pete's been through more than most people, less than some, in terms of having a very unique life uh, you know, a specific kind of pain around losing a parent during a national tragedy. Uh, his father was a firefighter who died on 9-11. And I think that it, it shaped him in a, in a lot of ways. And that's what he wants to explore in the movie. You know, what, what does it do to a family when you lose a parent and you lose a parent who dies while committing a heroic act and all the ways that, that complicates somebody's childhood? And it was a comedy. Anyone listening to this or watching this, it was. A, and it's hilarious. <laughs> Doesn't it sound hilarious? <laughs> yeah, we're making it sound a little bit morose, but it, it was really funny. Pete's very funny. Uh, Bill Burr is hysterical. Like they're like, uh, I feel like Marissa Tomei is like everybody's uh, mom or aunt. <laughs> I guess. Because <laughs> like, she was, I think she was Aunt May in a couple of the Spider-Man movies. But one of the, the things I got from the movie too, uh, and this has been consistent throughout your career, is that like that you're trying to sort of help the next generation of uh, storyteller, comedian along and tell their stories. And the first, very first guest on Yang Speaks 
was Ken Jong, who obviously is incredibly yes. grateful to you. They talked mm -hmm. about how you were one of the main reasons why he went into comedy full time because uh, you saw in him, you were like, hey, you can really do this. Um, and I feel like while Ken has that story, I have a feeling there are dozens of other people that have had a similar story where you've helped. You like you go around like knighting people, <laughs> and then after they've been knighted by you, then they go off to have these incredibly productive careers. Uh, well, Ken is someone that we met when we were casting Knocked Up, and you know we had this very unique experience that we've talked about, which was we went to see a doctor when we were searching for somebody to uh, be the OBGYN at uh, our baby's birth. And we met a few people and we chose somebody. And that person on the night that uh, uh, our daughter was being born left town and didn't tell us and didn't set us up with a backup situation. No, They just went to you know, a bar mitzvah uh, up north and bailed on us. And when, when we called to say, you know, what, what are we supposed to do? Uh, try to, you know, connect us with another doctor who we had never met. Yeah, that, that's not cool. And sometimes I think the universe does this to you on purpose because we were obsessed with finding a doctor who would not bail on us. We talked about it all the time. We would like the doctor we see to deliver the baby. We don't want to meet someone and then have someone else it, in the because office it's do it. intimate. Was this your first yes. or second child? Or, uh... This was our, our second child. And so that was very important. And, and we said, are you going to be there? Absolutely going to be there. And so when that happened, when my wife uh, went into labor, we had to find the doctor. We literally didn't have a doctor. And we said, we don't want your backup. We were just very upset with the, the office and how it was handled. So we wound up calling a doctor that we did not ask to be the doctor. And so it was sort of like the runner up. In terms <laughs> exactly. Of, uh, the, it was the, yeah. it was the runner up who must have felt rejected in some way, but uh, like, congratulations, you've won. <laughs> <laughs> I know we didn't choose you, but we desperately need your help right now. Meet uh, us and, at the office right now. <laughs> and it's also, it's also, you know, it's a, it's an all night, uh, you know, affair. So this, this doctor agrees to come and it's just really, grumpy and unpleasant and borderline mean oh, uh, no. to, to us. And at the time it was a nightmare it really was a, a terrible moment. And you know, I think we've all had that with doctors where some doctors are great and very in tune with you emotionally and other doctors who might be great doctors, they're completely out of tune with you emotionally and, and, and they don't, almost understand your feelings. So this doctor was so rough on us. Uh, and he did say the line when I said, you know, thank you for coming. He said, yeah, I was just sleeping. <laughs> but, um, but at some point I took him in the hallway to say, you need to be nicer. This is really too hard uh, on, on, on us. And, while I was saying it, my stomach gurgled like, and it was like, I was going to just crap myself, you know, in the middle of the hallway at the hospital. And the doctor heard it. And I saw in his eyes, him realize in that moment, I'm being mean to these people. Like this guy's cracking and it's my fault. And he did try to make an adjustment from hearing my stomach make a sound. You, you, were, you were metabolically <laughs> destroying. Exactly. <laughs> I almost shit the hallway. <laughs> and so, I, you know, as a writer, there's always a part of your brain that's thinking this is terrible, but it's also hysterical. If we can get through this night uh, in a healthy, uh, normal way, if he, if he could be nice to us, at some point, this is a funny story. And I think that's the great thing about being in comedy is when things are terrible, they're not just terrible. They're, they also might have some value. You were, you were like, this terrible experience is somehow productive for my career. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's what, that's what happens. Like, I, I threw out the first game, the first pitch at a Mets game. I was thinking about this because, of, you know, Fauci had a bad throw the other day. And I had a bad throw. But before I did the throw, I thought, well, if it goes bad, at least it's a pretty funny story <laughs> to tell people that have this humiliating first pitch experience. 
So when we were looking for someone to play that doctor, it was a hard thing to find. You, you, you know, people who aren't doctors were not very good at getting across the energy of stressed out doctors. And Ken came in and, the, and our casting director, Allison Jones, who's a genius, who did The Office and a zillion of our movies, she said, you know, the, you know, he's fantastic. He's exactly right. And he came in and he just captured that quality. And he found a way to make it really funny too, where you believed he was a real doctor, because he is, but he, he knew how doctors are badly behaved around patients. But the thing that we did that was really funny is we kept shooting extras for our, our DVD. And so whenever we would shoot a scene, we would say, let's just shoot a funny sketch while we're here. And a lot of times we would shoot it on film. We would just roll the cameras and do something weird for the DVD. And we just asked him to come in and be really vicious uh, to Catherine Heigl, uh, who was in character. As a, so, so she's in bed, pregnant, and we just had Ken scream at her, like a doctor who had you know, lost his mind. And he did this like eight minute rant yelling at her. And it's on the DVD. It was so funny that we thought, oh, this guy is ridiculously talented and hilarious. It was all an improv. And he worked in, on other projects with us. And I'm so happy that his career has gone well because he's like, I think I'm going to stop being a doctor. And I'm like, are you sure, Ken? I mean, that's oh, kind really? of a big decision. <laughs> I've met you. Like, in his story, it's more like, I believe in you, Ken. And then in your, you're like, are you sure you want to do this? Like, I believe in you too, it's but... It's a pretty big commitment. You know, you never want anybody to quit their vocation. You know, can't you do it at the same time? I mean, I knew he was funny, but you never know if people find the parts that show off how great they are. There's plenty of talented people, and it just doesn't line up. They, you know, they don't have that magic moment where they audition for something that they're right for, and the director gets that they are right. I mean, that happens. Uh, I knew I would want to work with him, so I'm so happy that he's turned it into this gigantic career. And he's the nicest man. So yeah, he's, he's a really good guy. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. I'd love to dig into what you just said about how there are a lot of talented people, but then circumstances have a break, right? They need the right role. They need um, someone to see that they're the right fit. I mean, because you, you grounded out. Your first love was stand-up comedy, and you grounded out in, like, you know, like the the grimiest of ways where I think you started out as literally like a like a like dishwasher or busboy at a comedy club in uh, mm -hmm. in New York uh, and uh, you're like the alpha comedy nerd now but I know like the beginnings of like that that arc where you're just like hanging out in clubs with folks uh, you know it's um, there are like a lot of people who come and go and then some obviously become huge stars like some like uh, some of the people that you've uh, been continuing to work with but then there are a lot of talented people that like you know, this like disappeared in terms of public consciousness because, um, you know, like of any of a, a number of reasons. And one thing that I'm always fascinated with is like how much of 
any system, so let's say the entertainment industry, uh, it is like what you'd call quote unquote like a meritocracy where if someone's like really talented, like they're going to wind up having like a, a certain degree of success uh, if they have the right qualities and how much of it is circumstance, find the right people, find the right partners. If you don't have the right like co-writer or the right casting director, like are there like a multitude of really, really talented people that you came up with or saw, but then they didn't have the same level of success as you might have projected you know, 15, 20 years ago? A lot of it depends on the, the definition uh, of success. You know, for some people, it's just, can I not get a real job? You know, can I be a comedian? Can I, you know, pay my bills doing the thing that makes me happy? For a lot of people, that is the success of it, you know, which it's is... like doing the work is itself a victory, like in a lot of these fields. I mean, in stand-up comedy, if, if you can make your living traveling around the country and doing stand-up and, and you can avoid a type of job you don't want to do, for a lot of people, that is enough. And for some people, they want to write and direct movies and be uh, actors or actresses, and they want a much larger scale success. And different people chase different things. There's always been people uh, in comedy that comedy people think, oh, that's the best person. But for whatever reason, maybe they're not commercial. Maybe for some reason they're not palatable to the masses. But it might be the comedian that everyone runs in to watch, that the comedians run in to watch because they're better than everyone else, but maybe it's edgier or maybe it's it's stranger than what would be a mainstream successful act. The comedian's comedian. Are there like a few yes. comedian's comedians out there that, sure. that you're like, ooh, we all love this person. Yes, and there are those people that are uh, clearly funnier than everybody else and maybe they don't want to be a star. Maybe they love, you know, the the size of their career. You know, there's not that many people who, um, you know, are the best of all time and the world rejects them. I mean, it, it, usually if you really are that special person, if, you know, if you're, if you're Dave Chappelle or if you're Amy Schumer, it's going to happen for you. It's usually pretty clear who is a cut above. Uh, just like, you know, it, you know in, in sports, it's, it, it's just going to happen. But there are also people that don't work well with others. <laughs> you know, they're like really talented, but they don't like to collaborate. Or maybe the reason why they're so great is because they're, they're rebellious and they have an oppositional stance and they can't fit into the system to make movies or have a TV show because they don't know how to work it. And that's what's very rare are, are people who have the talent and the charisma and they understand how to work the business. Sometimes you're funny because you don't play well with others. Yes. And you, you can't figure it out. And I, I know for the first 10 years of my career, I, I was very argumentative and I didn't know how to take notes and I didn't know how to collaborate in a healthy way. And I, I would you know, get in big, <laughs> big fights with people because I was so protective of the work. I didn't want to ever screw up the work. So if someone had bad notes, I was not pleasant to them. You, you were like a capital C creative, Judd. You were like, don't you see the genius of freaks and geeks? Come on, people. Come on, network. Well, that's <laughs> a painful situation. I mean, that's like a, you know, it's a painful situation. People have it in all businesses. But when you feel very confident that what you're doing is good and the person who has power over you says, I don't think what you're doing is any good. Well, that's you know, that's when you really go to war with somebody uh, and you have to decide, well, am I going to water it down to please this person that doesn't get it? Or am I going to fight to make it exactly what we all in the collaboration want it to be? And, you know, over time I realized that the, the key to it is finding people who get what you do. You know, when you're young, you're, you'll work for anyone that will give you a job or will pay for your TV show or movie. But if you get any level of success, you can say, I need to have that person really understand what I do deeply so the collaboration is healthy. And that's what I've been lucky enough to do later in my career is go, oh, Universal Studios, they get what I do. They get my sense of humor. They understand. Well, at this point, yes. you've made some, so many people so much money, man. They could be like, well, I don't get it, but, but here you go. <laughs> but, but you'd be surprised. I mean, I go out with like a TV show to pitch a show. I still get rejected by most people. 
I don't really get that, you know, you've succeeded, so we trust you thing. Yeah, I, I, a, a fair amount of the time, it literally means nothing. And that's, you'd be surprised how often your uh, rate of success does not factor in to the discussion about whether or not I should be allowed to make something. That's fascinating. You know, there are actually uncanny parallels to what you just described between, uh, let's say, comedy and like producing TV shows and movies uh, in terms of this corporate layer of people and they have notes for you. Mm-hmm. In my experience with politics. So let, let's say that you're a person running for president. And you're like, OK, here's like the message or here's how I'm naturally going to say something. And then you have this layer of people who are professionals and do it for a living. And like they're, uh, you know, consultants. They're like, hey, instead of saying it this way, you might want to say it this way. You might want to say it that way. Um, and then like there, there's like a part of you that's like, well, screw you. Like, you know, who, who the hell are you? <laughs> you know, it's like, like, yeah. I'm like the author of this message, so to speak. Sure. Uh, and, and then, but so that, but they have a version of experience because they've been through like multiple, uh, in the, in their case, um, campaigns in your case, they've made lots of like TV shows and movies. So you get like the equivalent of notes. Yes. Uh, it, and one of the things I think that's happened in both entertainment and politics is that that consultant class in politics, very, very uh, influential. Um, and if you were a new candidate, you feel like you, you're like, well, they're the more experienced hands, like they've seen this stuff. So you like take it to heart. In my case, I was like something of a blend between young Judd and like more experienced Judd where I was like, okay, I'll like, I'll take your notes. But if I disagree with it, I'm going to ignore it. Um, and, and in part because with my campaign, we reached a certain level of critical mass without any consultants. And then as soon as there was money involved and the consultants showed up, think about it too much. Right. Yeah, it, but, it, but, but it is funny. It's like, there's almost like this corporate layer, like sanding down certainly our political messaging because I, you know, like uh, I, I've seen it happen to other candidates where like the consultant class shows up and then all of a sudden, like you, you see them communicating in a certain way. Well, you could lose uh, a sense of what you're, who you are. And that uh, I think is very uh, similar. I remember one of the first things I did is I, I, I created a sketch show with Ben Stiller the Ben Stiller show, which was on Fox in 1992. And we shot the pilot and I gave the pilot to two friends to get notes. One was Gary Shandling and one was Albert Brooks. And then I did long calls with each one about which sketches they liked. There were seven sketches on the pilot and which ones they liked less. It was the exact opposite. They, they both chose different sketches. Now, if I took notes from either of them, we might have changed the pilot based on their preferences. Oh, that's a better sketch. Maybe that should be the first sketch. But it was all the opposite. They just like completely different things on the, the pilot. And it was a giant lesson for me because if I gave it to just one of them, I might have just taken all the notes. But I realized that I could have two people that I look up to that I think are at the very height uh, of of what they do, that they both have completely different opinions, and they both can be right in a way. Uh, you know who you know who's to say how you interpret that. So what does that mean? Well, that means that we have to go with our gut about it. That we're not going to get those clear answers, and you can get thrown off of your vision. Like on Freaks and Geeks, the note to Paul Feig and I was: these kids need more victories, and our feeling was this show is about the fact that they don't have victories most of the time, that it's about friendship. It's about their struggles to figure out who they are through this process of high school, which is really hard on them. But if I, if I took the note and gave them more victories, maybe the show would have gotten picked up and then maybe the second season would have been terrible. And maybe we would have, ju- we would have just lost our way. And I think a politician can do that as well. And we see it in history where we go, was Clinton tough on crime because it's a great way to run for office? It's a, a great way to get supporters. You know, you know, were they against, uh, you know, gays in the military? Uh, because at that time, he, he you know, with, with don't ask, don't tell, that was a, a political way of not, 
offending people he wanted to vote for him. How many times did the consulting class make him change his own views? What he, what he believes, I'm not sure what he believes. I'm just saying we feel that all the time. You know, I remember someone was saying the only reason why Trump said build the wall was because they wanted him to talk about immigration a lot and he would forget. He wouldn't mention immigration sometimes. And they came up with this concept of saying build the wall and having the, the crowd chant it. It was only created to make him remember to talk about immigration. It wasn't like the people who thought of it said, we want him to actually build a wall. It was just like a speech device. Uh, this is a way we're going to make sure he can remember this talking point, uh, and especially if people then start chanting it. Uh, that sounds very true to life, uh, given what we know about um, Trump and, and his, the way his mind works. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. Uh, no, and we're going to get into politics in a, in a bit because I know you've been very, very um, active and passionate uh, um, on, on many levels. Uh, you clearly care deeply about live comedy comedy i mean you know it's something where you yourself just went back to perform even though uh, at that point like you know you didn't necessarily need to put yourself <laughs> you know, to the <laughs> test in that way uh you know i i was talking to michelle wolf uh, on the podcast a number of weeks ago and we we're talking about what the heck live comedy looks like in a uh, time of covid right now and michelle right now is performing, not right now as we're talking, but right now is, is performing at a cornfield in Ohio yeah. um, <laughs> because she's, you know, it's open air, so it's very, very safe. Um, and uh, I was joking with someone that that cornfield in Ohio is now like the live comedy capital of the That's right. <laughs> uh, of the country because it's her and Dave Chappelle. And I think Michael Che has been out there. And so that, you know, if you happen to live in that part of Ohio, you go. Um, but but it, it does strike me that if you were to make a short list of things that are going to be the most jeopardized by this climate, live comedy would have to be toward the top of the list uh, because it's such an interactive medium. It's like, you, you know, you, you can't really... Uh, figure out what's going on without some kind of crowd feedback uh, and crowds are at this point inadvisable, especially indoor crowds. I mean, it's one reason why they're doing this outdoors in a cornfield. I, I think that it's, it's a, a real tragedy for us in stand-up comedy. Uh, you know, we, we feel so bad for all the club owners, all the employees of, of all these clubs, hundreds of clubs and venues. And there are so many, uh, you know, comedians that work very hard. I mean, we know the mega famous people, but there's also, you know, hundreds or you know, a thousand other just hardworking, really nice, funny people who spend 
you know, their entire lives trying to make people happy, trying to make people laugh. And it's a hard life. You really travel a ton Very hard. Very and, hard. and you're up late at night and, and you're, you know, constantly trying to revise your act to make it stronger, to try to get ahead. If you have a family, it, it, it's, it can be very, very challenging to be around because it is a, a life of traveling. And that whole world has disappeared for the most part. I know there are some places in certain parts of the country that have found a way to, to put on shows with you know, limited crowds and, you know, Dave Chappelle is obviously doing something very, you know, unique uh, where he lives, which is fantastic. But most of that business is in, you know, purgatory right now. It's just frozen. And, and we worry about all those people. I, I have a lot of friends. They, they, they performed every night for decades. I mean, there's the financial aspect. Then there's just the emotional aspect. These people's lives are about being creative and expressing themselves and to take that away from them must be you know very difficult on on their mental health yeah it makes me really sad too uh and you know you you think about all the people that are impacted i mean the the performers themselves but then like all the bartenders and the, the like the folks who work at these clubs and these clubs are not exactly like swimming in riches even in good times you know it's like uh like a lot of the people who are in uh, in comedy, just do it for the love. Uh, and it, it, it breaks my heart that so many people now are just going to be, um, really cut adrift, uh, both financially, creative, creatively. I'm a huge fan of, uh, of comedy in general. Like, I think it's really important. And one of the things that we're raising, and now we're going to sort of move towards like the comedy politics, uh, overlap is that at this point, I think a significant proportion of Americans get their information from comedy shows. It's like comedians have become like the next generation truth tellers. You have these politicians that now at this point, people don't trust very much. And then you have like the filter of the news media, which unfortunately now also many Americans don't trust that much. And you have the, like the sense of polarization. Uh, uh, and then comedians are saying things that make us laugh, but uh, often there's like massive, massive... Uh, amounts of truth in the jokes that they're they're telling. Um, I think it's one reason why uh, people are gravitating towards people like Dave Chappelle as almost like the the uh, the people who can tell us what's going on. I, I think so, which is in a lot of ways unfortunate because it's not really the purpose of of comedy. I mean, comedy should be a part of it. It's part of the information ecosystem but when it becomes your primary source of information that's scary as well and the fact that we don't have enough trusted sources of information is what is hurting our democracy and i think we feel it even in places that we do trust that they hold back you know when you watch all the sunday morning programs and they interview you know the chief of staff for for the president they, they, they go soft on everybody because they do want access. They do want them to come back. And you feel like, wow, these interviews should all be way tougher. I mean, we are in crisis mode. And how many times I watch it, someone in politics get interviewed and I think, wow, that was a pretty easy interview for that person at a moment when tens of thousands of people are dying based on these decisions. And I think people like comedy because the comedians don't, you know, they don't have the access to interview everybody, everyone, but they don't have to put on that filter of being full of shit. They don't have to be sweet about it. They could just say, this is madness. This is hypocrisy. This is corruption in the way, you know, a lot of journalists want to, uh, but I don't think they can say it in the same terms. Well, yeah, journalists can't just throw down that way because it somehow makes them seem reactive or biased, which to me, I mean, uh, at this point, like you said, if you don't have a strong point of view, you're not uh, being awake or truthful. And I, I've been on those news programs as a subject. And I can say very much that if you were, let's say, a government official, and you were put on the spot in these interviews, one, to your point, they'll probably go somewhat easy on you if you're in a position of influence. Um, and sometimes that, uh, like the questions get hashed down, vetted and pre-approved before you agree to show up. So there's that. Yes. You, yeah, yeah. you could be like, hey, look, don't ask me about X and Y. And but the audience doesn't know that, by the way. 
the, audi- oh, the audience doesn't do. know. <laughs> yeah, now they do. But, but, but that's a giant thing for the audience not to know that, you know, going on these Sunday shows or in certain interviews is the same as, you know, me going on the Tonight Show, that there's a pre-interview and that they're not going to come on if you're going to ask about Russian bounties or, or something else and that that's the only way they will come on. So it, it, it's filtered in ways that are not transparent to people because I, you know, it's it's like the world has turned and the news can't seem to adjust to it. So for instance, there's clearly a moment where, you know, when Donald Trump said we have 15 cases and it's going to go down to zero, we, we know for sure that someone privately said to the president, it's not going to zero. It's going to be hundreds of thousands soon. And he made a political calculation not to tell the country and to not be honest about what we were in for. And he set the conditions for what led to tens of thousands of additional people dying who wouldn't have if at that moment he prepared and prepared the country. Now, can a journalist say that directly? Which is, you chose your political career over the lives of thousands of people, and you are responsible for that because in this meeting, you were told how this was probably going to progress. And you won't see people be that tough on them. You, I've never heard anyone say to the people around the president, when was he told this was going to get out of control? What day did someone say, it's not going to be 15, it's going to be millions or tens of thousands? And what did he say? What did he say? And why did his messaging not change for weeks and weeks and weeks or months. And that is the, the question for this election. When was the president told what was going to happen? And why did he reject that? And why did he not tell the country? Well, the second thing I'd say about these interviews, Judd, is that if you are, let's say, a government official, um, number one, there's the certain types of questions you might get asked. But number two, if your goal is to get out of that interview um, saying, nothing like you can do it (laughs) you just don't answer the question i do it in movie interviews people ask something and if i don't have an answer for it i just say anything i mean that's the funny thing about interviews you know people could say uh you know what's it like uh you know working with with this actor you know what here's the great thing about working in new york you know what I mean? Like you can yeah, yeah, that, point that, it up. That's hysterical. You, <laughs> <and> you, <laughs> like totally, we're, we're now wondering which actor you do not want to talk about what it's really like to work with them. Um, <laughs> but, but, the, but yes, it's exactly like that, Judd, where what happens with if you are an official, and you didn't have to do this when you were talking about your movies, but if you're an official, you, let's say you have a six-minute interview segment. What they do is they sit the official down and they say, here are six minutes of talking points. And if they ask a question that uh, is not comfortable for you, just go to this. You will then fill up the interview time and it's over. Uh, yeah. Like, like that, that's the way it works. Uh, where, yeah. Um, so, it's comical, by the way. If you watch it and you see someone, you know, talking to Kellyanne Conway and they ask a direct question and then she says, you know what we should be talking about is why you guys keep talking about blah, blah, blah. And sometimes the journalists will go, I hear what you're saying but can you please answer this question? She'll do it again. She'll do it a third time. And then they're basically out of time. Yeah. You can run out the clock on those interviews all the time because it's just like the cadence of the TV um, uh, format really where, and I've been in the format, you know, now obviously like hundreds of times. And uh, most of the time when I was running, I was like, I'm trying to get this message out. Um, but sometimes they'd ask me about something that I had no interest in talking about. Um, my, my propensity is just to answer the question. You ask me a question, I'll probably try yeah. to answer it. <laughs> but but, there, <laughs> but there, were, there were some times when it was like, um, you know, some, something like along the lines of what you were saying. It's like asked, asked about like an actor uh, working with him and you were like, I'd rather not talk about this. I'll go someplace else. That's Dude, why your representative Katie Porter should be the person on all of these shows interviewing everybody. Because when you see see her uh, you know speak to people she was talking to the head of lockheed the other day yeah she's tough she's and uh, she's, she's smart she, and, uh, and, she, and she was saying why are you applying for uh ppp or whatever. for help and she's like you made 15 percent more this year than the year before and he's like everyone's asking for help and, and she's like yeah that doesn't make it right why are you asking for help and you know he, he and he dances around it uh, but she just keeps doing it. And I think a lot of our, our Congress people 
have found a way to prepare for those moments in a much tougher way uh, than we've ever seen before. And we need to see more of that. I mean, you know, that Chris Wallace interview uh, the other day with Donald Trump was fascinating because he, he went harder than we've seen most people go to say, no, that's not true what you're saying. And Donald Trump is clearly shocked that anybody's like, no, I have the information. What you're saying is not correct. And we really need that from everybody because obviously everyone should always tell the truth, but these questions cost tens of thousands of lives. And for some reason, it's like everything's been so normalized and Republicans, they want to normalize death. They want to normalize this so that we all go, well, it was only 380,000 people when really maybe it could have been 25,000 for the whole country. They want us to think it's fine and it isn't fine. And it is a political calculation to time out what happens with this pandemic to get reelected as opposed to just do what helps. When we were talking, you and I, about politics a little, a little while ago, you said something that I thought was very interesting, uh, which was that, generally speaking, like the um, the funnier candidate will prevail when you're talking yes. about something like... Sadly, uh, that's one know, of my like, theories. <laughs> yeah, that's one of, one of your theories. Uh, and then you suggested something really interesting to me, which was like, which was like you were thinking, maybe we should try and... Uh, now, the dynamic of this particular election has now completely changed. Like, in my opinion, Joe, you know, is uh, heavily favored in the polls now, and we're in the midst of a crisis. And so, like, the humor test, like, at this point, everyone's like, screw that. Like, I'd, I'd rather just, like, a return to sanity. Um, but there was a... Uh, but I, there was a suggestion you had that I thought was really interesting. You were like, maybe we should get some comedy writers together to, like, write some, um, some good scripts or lines for... Uh, whoever the Democratic nominee, like, uh, you know, like, uh, like, uh, may end up being. And I, I mean, obviously, we're in a different moment now. But I, I thought that there was something really powerful to like your, uh, your general thinking on it, um, which is that at this point, politicians are communicators. Um, and there's like certain language they use to communicate, uh, you know, that uh, is hitting with certain groups of Americans, like maybe less so for, for others. But I was part of these debates. Uh, Judd, and it was clear to me that, that some of the candidates definitely had jokes that they'd rehearsed. That they, yes. they, they, they certainly had stuff yes. that they'd like practiced. Sure. And, and we do have these debates upcoming between Joe and Donald Trump that um, may be one of the only uh, set of events that could potentially even change the dynamic of the race meaningfully. I, I think that, you know, in, in America, unfortunately, so much of it is entertainment and people are taken in by charisma, sense of humor, attractiveness, and a lot of the presidents from the past that maybe had, you know, were not appealing to look at or listen to, but who happened to be brilliant. Uh, maybe some of those people would not be elected today. You know, there are a lot of people who are incredible at their jobs who are really uh, not uh, pleasant to talk to or, or, or look at. They're not funny, but maybe they're just amazing at making the, the correct choices or thoughtful, difficult choices. And if you look back, and I, I joke about this, but I do think it's true, you tend to see that the slightly more entertaining or warmer candidate often wins. I, I mean, when Al Gore lost, I remember being pretty shocked because when you watch the debates, you know, George Bush was terrible in those, in those debates, but he did have a certain charm about him and the country was doing great at that moment. The economy was, was, he, he was, was that, very strong. Have a beer with competition. I remember that. And, and it was almost like the, the, the country had you know, a Clinton fatigue, a scandal fatigue, and they weren't factoring in the fact that the country was operating in, in, in you know, for our country, uh, pretty well. The economy was doing very well. It wasn't the moment to toss Re out the Democrats. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but a bored country is 
seeking entertainment and a friend and 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 I think that that has happened many times in our in our history where we're attracted to that and I think you might say the same thing about Donald Trump where he's more of an aggressive insult comic um and people didn't pay attention to the fact that he had ripped off a lot of students that he didn't pay his bills that he was uh you know awful to women uh you know there were so many very clear signals to us that he was corrupt and not empathetic and a dangerous person but people bought into you know his bravado his entertainment factor and he had no record so it was easy for him to say Hillary Clinton is corrupt because he he hadn't held any elective office he didn't have to come through on any of his promises i think if you look at what what happened he 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 really didn't accomplish any of the things that he was talking about yeah you know, what you're saying is spot on Judd, and this is one of like the great dynamics that i'm scratching my head about um it, to some level with concern um which is that it, it seems like politics and entertainment have uh have merged and at least in some respects and then if you have some larger than life uh figure that millions of americans in the case of donald trump felt like they knew from the apprentice and other things then then like he like overrode um a lot of other like the rest of the republican field and then it was him against hillary he seemed somehow more entertaining and appealing and like quote-unquote authentic sure. uh, and in the democratic field too there was something that happened and i was the beneficiary of this so it's not, not a knock but like let's say you have folks like steve bullock governor of montana who makes a late entrance into the race or michael bennett senator from colorado who like people didn't find particularly like exciting or whatnot that uh that they got uh ignored and blown off more or less um and, and then if you have like the magical asian man who wants to give everyone money and like who came from the internet then like i became more of like a figure in part because like i was more interesting um now that this is not something i'm I, I think is necessarily like a super positive in, in uh, yes. american like politics you know like i happen to think both steve bullock and michael bennett um uh, deserved more attention than they got um, from voters or from in, you know uh, uh, folks in in uh, the know, um, and it's one reason why you have people suggesting completely seriously that you know The Rock should run for president or like someone that really? we all know Tucker Carlson or Kanye. Or people, uh, Tucker Carlson, like you know, on, on like on the Republican side, who is like a commentator entertainer but at this point that the things have kind of merged where if you have like a very prominent public persona then that actually is like a massive um value add in terms of your political currency absolutely and it's scary i mean we don't quite understand the kanye west motivations you know there are some people who you know would read uh something into it about him wanting to split the vote uh, and then other people who think like, no, the whole thing is just a, a manic episode and there is no logic behind it or, 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 or vision. He's just having a meltdown. But regardless, they say in certain states when they did some quick polling, maybe he already had 2% or 4%. And that's what's scary about the idea of unqualified people jumping in because clearly our country has not been discerning enough to say, I don't think being on The Apprentice is enough to run the country. I don't, I don't think having those bankruptcies and running hotels makes this person qualified. And so we are scared when we hear Trump's kids are going to run one day or Tucker Carlson or, 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 you know, or The Rock, where you, you think, oh, no, I, I, I want someone who really understands how government works. I want somebody who who has a, you know, a vision that I agree with. I don't want it to just be somebody who's popular. Now, it's not impossible that a famous person can turn out to be a, a, you know, a wise, thoughtful, good president. It's, but man, it's, that's a, the, the percentages of that are probably still pretty scary, pretty low. And we see it with Donald Trump now. His lack of experience means he doesn't really understand how to work government. He doesn't know how to get masks made. He doesn't know how to get enough test tubes so that you could do the testing. And he doesn't want to. 
he literally doesn't even want to find out how to do it because he is lazy. He clearly has educational issues. He doesn't think well. And so he says, let the governors handle it because he can't manage a gigantic bureaucracy. And we need people that know how to do that. You know what, what's tough, Judd, is, and I, I generally agree with, uh, with a lot of what you just said, um, just so many Americans have looked up and been like, man, this stuff's not been working for us. And even when you and I talked about like the good times of when Al Gore was running in 2000 and you made the caveat, which was right, is like, like relatively speaking, things were, were good um, at that point, even compared though to we, now. Yeah, compared to now. But we also recognize that like uh, that there's been a lot there've been a lot of people left behind even like the relatively good times. These bad times are showing just how exposed many American families are where, you know, like that like that there's like uh uh just financial insecurity everywhere and like uh and many Americans have felt excluded from uh even the gains that have been made. Uh, and, and there's so many Americans that just look up and be like, man, like even under the Democrats, like, you know, my factory was closing, my Main Street stores were closing because of Amazon. Like they, they look up and they're like, not sure. Uh, in my opinion, that's what one of the things that fuels like our interest in these folks from outside government, because like like the, the because people have lost faith in a lot of things in our society. Sure. Um, but but like one of the things they've lost faith in is that if they get uh like the other party into power in dc that things will ma- meaningfully change where like in their school or in their street or uh, you know these things now all of that said i'm obviously very pro biden i've endorsed him i've been uh, doing everything i can to help um and i get the sense from what you've just said that you are also pulling for uh team joe <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> in the fall. i don't think that's like much of a stretch um so would would love to hear like uh, what you're seeing and also if there are particular races that you're um, like focused on outside of the big kahuna race between Joe and and Donald Trump, whether there are some political candidates that have caught your eye. Um, Certainly on our side, there are, you know, um, a number of candidates that I'm trying to help and elevate Mm -hmm. like uh, at the local levels um, and was wondering if if there were uh, people that you were working with on that side. Well, I think that, um, you know, it's very important that uh, the Democrats will win the Senate because I think, you know, if, if you're to envision what the next four years would be if, if, if uh, Joe Biden was the president, we're going to be in the midst of the pandemic into next year, maybe beyond into 22. It also might be something that is around in some form chronically where it's like the flu in the sense that we're getting shots every year. And what if the shot only works 50% of the time? I mean, the flu shot, we all get it. And some years we're like, oh, they didn't get the right one this year. So we don't know how many years we're going to be dealing with this where it's very serious. Hopefully there'll be some sort of, you know, medicines that help us, even if we do get it where it's not as dangerous, we don't know yet, but that could play out over years. Yes. So we, we have to, also assume that that the country will be very impatient for solutions from the next president economic solutions for the disaster that's clearly coming from all of this uh, and also the the medical issues and if something really meaningful does not happen then the, the joe biden will be a one-term president I, I, there's a chance he's a one-term president anyway uh, maybe another Democrat will run after, after four years. And so without the Senate, um, I don't think he'll be able to make large scale, meaningful change in the country and be able to fix a lot of what we've learned about how badly our institutions work. I mean, yeah. we're basically finding out on a daily basis that on almost any it. issue, you could take it to the Supreme Court. It takes years and you don't actually get solutions uh, you can't even find out if you're allowed to, if the Congress is allowed to subpoena people to, to speak to committees, right? We're, we're still not sure if they're allowed to force people to answer questions to be held accountable for their work for the country. Uh, and you could kick the, the can down uh, the street on almost anything in the courts, right? So the justice system is, is, is a complete mess. The courts are a complete mess. And my concern is that 
if things don't turn around and it goes right back to the Republicans in four years, and what it will be is a smarter Donald Trump, a less demented Donald Trump with the same long-term vision. I mean, Donald Trump is not a very efficient person. We don't know what, we don't even know how much of these choices he makes are his or just the people around him who are able to get ideas through this strange man. You know, when I hear that, like, they're not going to let, they they, they try to not let students stay in the country if their college switches to Zoom classes. I don't think Donald Trump was in a room and thought that up. You know, that's... That that is the thing that many people are concerned about, Judd, is like, uh, imagine competent and malevolent, uh, you know, as opposed to, uh, yeah. Tom Cotton, you know, know, there's all these people uh, that... Are, are truly dangerous that it could swing back to them very quickly if the country's still struggling in a few years. And you know what? The, the country will be struggling. And, and so what, what can a president who controls the Congress and the Senate do in terms of, of health care, uh, in terms of you know, larger changes? You know, I thought you had one of the best tweets I've ever seen, uh, and I'm going to misquote it, but it's when they did the first stimulus for this, and your tweet was something like, I guess they did have the money for health care. Was it for health care or for something else? What was the quote? Well, in, in my case, it was, uh, it was for universal basic income. Yes. Because, you know, I love yeah. that stuff. But I, was, I guess they did have the money for, for universal basic income the whole time. Right. And that's um, what we learned, which is all of these things that they don't want to do, let's say, forgive some student debt yeah. or to end mass incarceration, whatever yes. it is, that we always did have the money. We always to, did to take care of healthcare. We have the money to give a, a you know a lot of cash to casinos for losing money over the last few months, or or yep. to you, we you have know, the, billions the, for that. Wait, but we did didn't say billions. I meant trillions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we could have fixed schools for the country. We could have had free college, uh, you know, for a lot of people in this country. So, sadly, where my head goes is, you know, when you think about it, a lot of this is a scam. You know, it's a scam. It is siphoning off money to people who don't need it. And even when the economy collapses, you know, the richest among us, they make money in that. Even Donald Trump said he loved when the economy crashed in 2008. He made a lot of money buying things up when it was cheap. The stock market is at all time highs, uh, you know, in many respects, like the winner take all economies is getting more extreme. Um, But you're 100% right, Judd, that the work has to um, has to kick into high gear as soon as the new president's in place in 2021. And we don't have that much time. Like we have to go huge and big to try to rejuvenate and revitalize hundreds of thousands of communities around the country. Because if we fail in this, and it's one reason why you, you do need a somewhat um, uh, unified legislative branch like you hope that the democrats and you know like have enough of a critical mass to get some real work done get some real bills passed but uh, we have to do the work over the next number of years or else like the, this wave does come uh crashing back the other way you know it's like in a way like i feel like americans donald trump was like a giant f you to the system just like screw it like get the uh, narcissist reality tv star in there drain the swamp um, I believe that Joe will win and then we'll have a chance to do the work. Uh, and we just need everyone to actually uh, get on board with like a, a more active, invigorated uh, effort to revitalize the country that emanates from the federal government. And I know there are a lot of people who aren't like huge fans of the government, um, like taking a leadership role in a lot of these things. But like we have no choice. I mean, you're talking about like a multi-trillion dollar uh, effort that's needed to do a lot of the things you just named, you know, like uh, overhaul our our totally immoral system of incarceration, invest in infrastructure and uh, renewable um, energy, new schools, like you name it, like we should be doing it because we're short millions and millions of jobs. And the folks who are in their houses right now figuring out how they're going to make ends meet, like it, it's, 
it's heartbreaking. Like we we just uh, we just failed. I mean, like our government has been out of touch with the people for so long, and I think that's one reason why um, someone like Trump won. Uh, and now we have to come back from it. I, I, absolutely, and I, and I think that on some level, after uh, Obama, there were a lot of people who said, "Well, you were in for eight years. I, I, it didn't touch me. It didn't get to me." And obviously, you know, that administration would say, you know, we didn't control. Uh, yeah, there was Mitch McConnell saying, hey, yeah. let's like obstruct everything in, in yeah. sight. And so they obstructed everything. And so, you know, one point of view is that they accomplished an enormous amount for having that type of obstruction. Uh, but it is up to the country to give the president the power by controlling the Senate and the Congress. I mean, if you want anything to happen, you, you have to control both to have, you know, a real sea change with the environment. I mean, you know, here's the scariest part of the pandemic. What we're learning is that a certain percentage of the country um, is kind of crazy. Like they won't wear masks. They're not long-term thinkers, you know, to solve the climate issue. I mean, if you get someone to wear a mask, how are you going to get somebody to have solar panels? How are you going to have somebody to make a choice to switch what kind of car they drive? I mean, it requires hundreds of sacrifices for everybody to save the planet. And we're, as a country, we're not long-term thinkers. People seem to feel like, I want to be as happy as I can be today. I don't want anything to, to inconvenience me. And I will fight you to the death for that. But if as a country and as a world, we're not in it together, if we're not all making sacrifices, if we're not all trying to lift each other up, uh, we will we definitely will not survive i mean when you look at the world and you know how they uh have reduced their covid cases yep. and you look at our country where everyone yep. feels like they deserve everything all the time and we can't do it even today we can't do it yes. well that can't do spirit is what will have our cities underwater in 50 years and that's the saddest part. I mean, Donald Trump clearly didn't ask anything of the country. He could have he could have gotten on TV and said, as of today, here's what I know. Every one of you, I don't care if you're in the middle of the woods and no one's around, wear masks. And we're going to be out of this. And, and we're, we're going to save a lot of lives. And we're going to get back to work. And he won't say it. And he encourages a certain kind of defiant independence, which will prevent us from solving COVID. It'll prevent us from solving the next pandemic, which we yep. also think is coming. It's coming, yes. And prevent us from solving the, the climate crisis, which we're in the center of right now. No one wants to talk about it. Well, I, I think it's one reason why you and yours are so important, Judd, is because you're one of the preeminent storytellers of this time. And like, we need ways to communicate some of these ideas to folks in America who... Um, you know, aren't in one camp or another. Uh, and I thought your movie, King of Staten Island, actually like helped make like really important points that any American would understand and be excited about around sacrifice and loyalty, like, you know, from Pete's family, which was somewhat biographical, like a lot of it's around the fire department in uh, Staten Island. Uh, and, you know, if you think about, you know, like who's pro fireman, I feel like that's everybody. <laughs> well, I, I think in a way, what the one of the reasons why I wanted the movie to come out now uh, was because I thought this is what we're talking about, that in a way, there's a spirit to the firefighting community that is selfless. You know, there are people uh, and we, we see them in all different businesses now. But if you just think about firefighters, they get up every day, they're going to get a call, they're going to put themselves in a dangerous situation to help you out. And they're trying to be there for the people they work with. You know, they're trying to be in the best shape of their lives so they can save you, so they can save themselves, so they can save the people that they work with. And it's all about service, right? And I think that, you know, the Republicans mock service, they mock the idea. In, in theory, they're all about service. In theory, you know, they're all, all about like uh, yeah, the army. And, yeah. yeah, they like to talk about the cops and the army. But when you really get down to it, you know, they're really more about power. They're, they're not about firefighters because firefighters are saying your life is important and I'm going to spend my life trying to make your life better. 
And in a way, that's what every citizen in the country We're all firefighters now, at least we all need we are. to be, because the country's on fire. Absolutely. And, and so it shouldn't be America first or make America great. It, it, it shouldn't be that when people don't want to get killed by the cops that you call them Marxists. That's not what it's about. You know, that's a, that's a signal like, oh, no, they're Marxists. It's about that we all need to help each other. We all need to lift each other up. That's why it's so powerful when you see, uh, you know, those mothers the other night in Portland yeah, yeah. stand up to this secret police force. Well, it says everything there. You know, those are people, clearly, there are people relying on them, and they think it's worth putting themselves in physical danger to call out the madness and to try to stop it. And we will not survive as a species without it. We are interconnected. You know, you could say make America great, but we have to be in communication with every country in the world to solve these problems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how are you going to fight the next pandemic if you're not in contact with uh, governments of other parts of the, the world who are probably going to be seeing it first? Yeah, we're, we're quitting the WHO. We're getting out of the Paris Climate Accords. We, you know, this is the moment where we should be trying to figure out how to make all of these connections work better. And that's what I hope happens with, with Joe Biden and a new I believe president. It, I believe it will, Judd. You and I are, are going to be uh, part of the team that's hopefully helping to knit the country back together. I appreciate the heck out of you. I've enjoyed your work for decades. Uh, I think you're one of the most powerful human storytellers uh, in our country today uh, and grateful to you for everything you do as a fellow parent even that we're just trying to make things better so that our kids can inherit a country and a world that uh, you know we're still proud to leave to them so thank you man appreciate you thank you thanks uh, for having me on no problem my pleasure and really if you haven't seen it or uh, yet king of staten island is a great great way to spend a couple of hours, particularly now when we're all like content hungry, we're looking around. It, it's like, uh, it's uh, it it's a beautiful film. Uh, you know, it's like looking at it, it was funny, um, poignant, uh, like I actually felt uplifted by it. And obviously Judd and, and uh, Pete and everyone else made the movie before this time, but it actually felt very, very much of this time. Well, I, I'm glad that, uh, you know, people have liked it and that it's out there and, and, uh, I run out of content as well. I'm, I'm watching like season four of American Idol now. I'm going back and uh, I'm watching, you know, Remington Steel. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> so at least I could offer something new to the people who haven't seen it yet. <laughs> so you heard it here first, folks. If anyone has any old TV recommendations, just uh, uh, pop into Judd's Twitter thread. <laughs> <laughs>